You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. our Bibles and turn to the book of James. Now, I want to make an announcement as you're turning to the second chapter of the book of James, and that is about October the 6th. October the 6th, three weeks from today, has been declared Oktoberfest at Cornerstone Baptist Church. Now, the only thing that we're not going to have that day is beer and German sausage, okay? (laughs) That's the only thing that that we'll not have on that day, but we're going to have everything else that's going to be going on. Uh, we are going to have 250 in Bible study that morning. We had 162 in Bible study this morning before the morning worship, and we're going to have 250 that morning on Bible in, in Bible study. You say, where are we going to put them, Pastor? I don't know. But it's going to be fun trying to find a place for them. It's going to be interesting to see how it works and how it happens. And that means that all of us are going to do our work. All of us are going to Uh, bring folks that don't know the Lord. We're going to bring some folks that are not actively involved in a New Testament church somewhere, and we're going to invite them to come and study God's Word with us on that day. And on that day, October the 6th, we're going to have 250 in Bible study, and then by that time, the back of the auditorium will be completely shelled out, as the church voted to do last Sunday night, and we'll have that down, and we'll have increased increased our seating capacity by about 50 or 60 individuals, and so we'll have a place for them to come in during the worship service and not have to squeeze in and everything, and it's going to be an exciting day. Then that night, we're going to have Tony Ellenberg from Nashville, Tennessee, young man that I grew up with and have not seen him in about 10 years uh, before I saw him about six months ago when I was preaching a revival in, at First Baptist Church in Big Springs, and he happened to be there, and uh, his group, he just finished his second album in Nashville. He lives in Nashville now, and he travels around the country in full-time uh, gospel music. He wasn't saved when I knew him, and I wasn't saved when he knew me. So when we met up at First Baptist Church in Big Springs, it was an interesting experience, and it was a great time of just reminiscing and praising the Lord for how God had, had changed my life, had changed his life, and his entire family, and it's just exciting. This is a young man that you're going to love. His spirit is so so humble. His spirit is so sweet, so gentle. I uh, loves the Lord and has a fabulous voice, and Eddie Blakely also is going to be with him. Y'all remember Eddie was with us about four months ago on a Sunday night, and the Lord just really used him to bless the folks that were here that night uh, as he led you in a concert of praise. And so Eddie's going to be here with Tony that day, and and we'll be singing with him, and then Eddie will be doing some singing on his own. And that night, they're going to have the entire service on October 6th for just a a night of of praise and of music. So I hope that you'll uh, begin to pray about that and pray toward that right now on October the 6th. Everything but beer and German sausage. Okay, James, the second chapter. The second chapter of James, I want us to read just a couple of verses, and then later on in the message, we're going to read some more verses in this. But uh, for the sake of time, we'll only read a couple of verses at the beginning, and then we'll refer to the particular verses we need to as we get into it. James chapter 2, verse 14, and then verse 17. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no work? Can that faith save him? And then verse 17. Even so... Faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. I want to speak to you this morning 
uh, on the title of the coroner's report on a dead face. Many of you have probably uh, watched the television show. If you, if you have a one-eyed monster in your home, and most of you do, you probably have four or five of them, you've watched the television show before, Quincy. And in that series, that television series, Quincy is a medical examiner or a coroner. Now, Quincy is one of those guys that has a different soapbox every week. As a matter of fact, the show kind of gets cornball a little bit sometimes because he is so soapboxy. But he's always got some soapbox that he's on that particular week that he's out to prove or he's out to counterattack or something like that. But the interesting thing about the show that I want to call attention to is at the very beginning of the show, every, every time that the show comes on, it'll, it'll begin with showing a picture of Quincy, and he's in the operating room. He's in the autopsy room, if you will, and he has the big microphone that's coming down from the ceiling that he's going to be speaking into, and he has all of the surgical tools there, and he has the scalpel and, and the saw and the, the hammer and chisel and all that kind of stuff that, he, that the surgeon uses, and there on the table before him is a body, and what he's doing, he's in the process of performing a, an autopsy. And as he goes through that autopsy, then he gives that report, and he speaks into that microphone and finally comes up with the report the cause or the reason that this particular ind individual expired or died. Now, as we look at this passage in James, and the very first thing I thought of as I read this passage uh, this week is that that's exactly what James is doing. James is, is really and truly giving a coroner's report on dead faith. He's giving a report on why faith sometimes is dead, why it is empty, and why it is vain. And James says that faith that is not alive is not really faith at all because he says faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. James is giving us a coroner's report on dead faith. Why? What makes faith dead? Empty, meaningless, and useless. Now let me say something at the outset that always needs to be said when you study this passage and study most of the book of James. I want to make clear to you that God's Word, and I believe and I, and I preach and teach this, that God's Word says that you are saved totally and completely by grace through faith. Works can't do it. Good deeds or good works or keeping the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, all of that kind of stuff. Let me say up front that none of that can bring an individual salvation. And James is not saying that. Salvation is completely by grace and it is through faith. But James has been misunderstood oftentimes at this very point because he is so practical as he writes his letter and his epistle. And so let me say to you that James in these verses is saying that you are saved by work. James says and James believed, I believe completely and totally that salvation was totally and completely of grace and not of works. Now imagine with me for just a minute this, this scenario. If if your salvation was based upon works, in other words, if you could do something to earn your salvation, then it would be obvious that you could do something to lose your salvation. And if that were true, if your salvation was dependent upon your works, then you'd never have any assurance of salvation, would you? You'd be constantly, every day, at the end of the day, getting out your scales and weighing your good deeds as opposed to your bad deeds and hoping that the good outweighed the bad so that you could go to bed that night with the calm assurance that yes if you died in your sleep that you'd have eternal life that you were saved and if i were to come to you on any given day if you believe that works was the way of salvation and ask you well uh are you saved today you'd begin the process of, of looking back through the day and you'd begin to think you say well i don't know for sure i hope i am 
And so in your mind's eye and in, in your mind, you'd begin to weigh the good deeds of the day against the bad deeds of the day. And, and you'd, if the good outweighed the bad, then you'd say, yeah, boy, <laughs> I made it today. You know, I'm saved today. But if the bad outweighed the good, then you'd come back and you'd say, well, I guess I didn't make it today. So I guess I'm not saved today. How ridiculous. Look at it in that light. Yet there are a lot of folks that are teaching that kind of stuff that salvation is of works and it's not of grace and that there is something that you could do to earn your salvation and make yourself righteous before God. But James is not saying that. And anyone that says that, whether he be a preacher, a man of the quote-unquote man of the cloth, or whoever he might possibly be, if he says that, he is not preaching the gospel of Christ. He is preaching another gospel. And Paul said, if anyone preaches to you another Christ, then let him be accursed. James is not saying that salvation is on the basis of works. That's not the picture of New Testament salvation. Now, some have said that James and Paul contradict each other. They've looked at the book of James, and they've looked at the writings of Paul, and they said, aha, <laughs> I've got it. The Bible can't be inspired of God because James says one thing, and Paul says another, and these two contradict each other about salvation. Let's take just a moment before we get into this report that James gives about a dead faith and deal with that issue because it's very important. And we can't afford to go, we can't afford to go around it. We can't afford to, to, to just ignore it and, and, and act like the problem does exist because the problem does exist on the surface if you look at it on a very surface basis. So keep your fingers in the book of James, okay? And turn with me to Romans. And let's look at what Paul says is the basis or is the foundation of salvation. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Keep your finger in James because we're going to be coming back there. Romans chapter 4, and let's look at the first four verses of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 4, verses 1 through 4. I like to hear those pages turning. That means you've got the Word of God. When was the last time you went parachuting without a parachute? Shouldn't come to, to worship or to Bible study without a Bible. There's one in the pew rack, by the way. If you don't have one, we supply them there for you because sometimes you do forget. And uh, so there's one there for you if you don't have one with you. Um, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to brag about. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. Now Paul says there in those verses, he says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to brag about, but he can't brag before God. In other words, Paul is saying he's not justified by works. He's justified by his faith because it says, and Abraham believed God, had faith in God, and that belief or that faith was counted to him as righteousness. He could brag before men if he was justified by works, but he could not brag before God because God's word says, your righteousness is as filthy rags before me. And we could go on, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and even that is not your own. It is a gift of God, lest anyone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul really lays it out there. He says it's by grace that you're saved, and that grace comes as you lay hold of that grace through faith. And even the faith is not your own, but it is a gift of God. God even gives you the faith and the ability to believe. So that no one should be bragging before God that they had earned their salvation. Now that's what Paul teaches about salvation. You're justified by faith. 
Now then, let's go back to James for just a moment, chapter 2, and let's read a couple of other verses in this second chapter. Verses 21 and 22, and then we'll read verse 24. And it sounds like James contradicts Paul. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, what did Paul say about Abraham? He was justified by belief, by faith, wasn't he? But now James says, but wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was made mature, or faith was perfected. Now, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. <laughs> There's a problem, isn't there? Paul says that you're justified by faith, that Abraham was justified by faith, not by his works. James says you're justified by faith and works, and it sounds like a contradiction in the Word of God, that there are two bases for salvation, according to Paul, and then according to James, as he writes. Let me go over it again. Paul says that you're justified by faith, and on the surface it looks like that James says that you're justified by faith plus your works. Is there a contradiction in Paul? And in James, how many of you have ever struggled with that problem? Have you ever have studied the, the, the Word of God enough to struggle with this problem of faith and works as James teaches it and as Paul teaches it? Well, let's try to put that to death, pardon the pun a little bit, uh, with the title of the message today. Let's try to put that problem to death this morning. Now then, Paul, when Paul refers to works, now this is important if you're going to understand this, if you're going to look beyond the surface and look into the Word and see if there is not a contradiction in God's Word, understand this, that when Paul deals with, work, with works, he is speaking of the law. He is speaking of the Old Testament law that the Pharisees were so, so proud of. And the Old Testament law was that they believed that by their circumcision, by their sacrificial offerings, by the keeping of the Levitical puritanical laws, by the keeping of the Sabbath, by all of those kinds of things, then an individual was right before God, that it didn't really matter the condition of his heart. Of course, they wouldn't say that. But it didn't really matter what was on the inside of man, but only what was on the outside, if he's been circumcised, if he has sacrificed, if he is faithful in, sac in, the, in the sacrificial offerings, if he keeps this law and this law and this law, the Pharisees said, if you do this, 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 and this, if you keep all of these rules, then you are right before God, then you have salvation. And Paul deals with that kind of works, the work of the law. And Paul comes back and he says, no, 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 that's not it. You are justified before God, not on the basis of those works of the law, but on the basis of faith. Now, that's what Paul means when he refers to works. Now, when we come to the book of James, you need to understand what James means when he speaks of works. In this chapter, chapter 2, when James speaks of works, he's not speaking of works of the law like, like circumcision or sacrifice or any of the Old Testament laws. He's not referring to that kind of law. When James speaks of law or works, he speaks of gospel works. Are you with me? He speaks of gospel works, not law. He speaks of those works that are the evidence of a gospel faith. He speaks of the works that come out of a life that is, that is motivated and is inspired and is moved by a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both attribute salvation to faith. Both attribute salvation to faith. Paul's stress is upon what must be removed in order for an individual to 
exercise saving faith, and that is dependence on the Old Testament law, James puts his stress on what must be present in order to prove that real faith is even in the life, and that is the works of, 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 of the gospel. That is the, the changed life. That is the evidence on the outside that there is a real and meaningful faith. Let me say it this way. Paul speaks of justification before God. Justification before God on the basis of faith. James is really dealing with justification before mankind and you need to know the difference or there's going to be a contradiction in the word of god paul speaks of what justifies us before the father what gives us salvation he said it is totally and completely faith james deals with what justifies us before mankind and that is works that are the outcropping of that saving faith that the individual has now, let me see if I can explain that a little bit better. And then we're gonna get, we are going to get into this. God sees my heart, doesn't he? God can look into my heart, can look right through all of this clothing and look right into my heart, and God can see if I have faith, right? The Father who knows my heart looks into my heart, and he can see if I have exercised genuine, saving faith. But can you? Can you do the same thing that God does? Can you just by looking at me, just by looking, can you look into my heart and know that I have exercised saving faith, that I have that kind of faith in God? No. How do you know if I have saving faith in God? Only by one thing, by what you see in my life, by what you hear me say, by the fruit that comes from my life. That is how you have evidence that I am in fact a born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have saving kind of faith. You see, God is able to look into my heart. I am justified before God by the, on the basis of faith because he sees my heart. I am justified, my faith is justified before man on the basis of the deeds of my life. And that is the difference between Paul and James. Paul deals with the works of the law and, and he says you cannot be justified with God like that. It's got to be by faith. James deals with gospel works, which are the result or the outcropping of that saving faith that I have exercised in the Lord. Now, notice verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If he says that he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? James's answer is no. It's bogus faith. It's empty faith. It's vain faith. It is dead faith. It has no works that go along with it. Therefore, it has no life. He says, so what if a guy says that he has faith? What you say doesn't make it so. If he says that he has faith and has no works, can that faith that is just a saying kind of faith save him? James's answer is no, it cannot. Now then, look at verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. We got to get together. <laughs> James says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith. How? By my works. James is interested in a show-me kind of faith, not just a talk-with-the-lips kind of faith, but he's interested in a faith that works itself out in the daily activities of life. And James's point is, if it doesn't work itself out in the daily activities of your life, then your faith is dead, and it is not, it is not saving 
faith. He's not talking about salvation being 50% faith and 50% works. He's talking about it being 100% faith that results in works, that results in a changed life. Paul deals with the root of justification, which is faith. James deals with the fruit of justification, which is gospel works. The root is beneath the ground and cannot be seen. But if the root is there, then the fruit is going to be evident on the outside. And James is so practical that he must make it clear that we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Did you hear that? We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith always brings with it a changed life works. So in these verses, James gives us a coroner's report. You're, I know you're afraid uh, because that introduction was so long, but the introduction was half of the message and needed to be in order to uh, lay the groundwork. Now let's go very quickly to verses 15 and 18. And James, in these continuing verses, gives us three things in his report of dead faith. What is the characteristic of dead faith? And James says, first of all, dead faith has no compassion. Verses 15 and 18 through 18. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Dead faith, first of all, is characterized by no compassion for its fellow man. Now let's suppose a scenario. Let's suppose that you're destitute. Let's suppose Monty our minister of music, became destitute in the ministry of music. Monty, is that possible? <laughs> to become a beggar uh, in, in the ministry? I suppose that it probably is. Let's suppose that, that Monty or somebody uh, is, becomes destitute. They've lost their job. <laughs> Monty, let's hope that doesn't happen. They've lost their job and they've become poor. All of the savings have been depleted. There's no food in the house. There's no food in the pantry. There's no clothing, no warm clothing for the coming of winter. And then one day, Monty or one of you comes and, and knocks on my door and, and you knock on my door and there I am. I'm in my warm house. I've got my fur-lined slippers on. I've, I, I don't have any fur-lined slippers, folks. Uh, but I've got my warm slippers on and my comfortable clothes and I've got a fire going in the fireplace and if it gets below 70, we usually do. And I've got that going and I've got a roast in the oven and I've got my feet up by the fire and I'm watching the Cowboys just trounce the Washington Redskins. Now, what more in life, physically and materially, could you possibly ask for than all of those kinds of things? And here I am, I'm comfortable, I'm enjoying the fruits of life and, and the material things that, that I have possessed. And you knock on my door and I open the door and there you stand, you're shivering and you're hungry. And I say to you, go away, go away. And then you begin to plead and you begin to cry and you say, but oh, James, I'm cold. I'm hungry. Our children are freezing and there's nothing to feed our children in the house. And we're going to die if you don't help me. And then in great tones of compassion, I reply to you, oh, I'm so sorry. You poor, poor man. I can just imagine how you must feel. Your poor children starving to death and freezing to death without any warm clothes, without any warm shoes. Oh, you poor thing. God bless you. God bless you. I'll pray for you. Now you go. Be warned. 
be filled. I'll pray for you. James says, words. Empty words. What good is that, he says, if you don't give him anything to eat, if you don't give him clothes for his back? What good is it? It is all empty. It's empty words. Meaningless words. And it is an open testimony, James says, of the emptiness and the deadness of your faith. Because he says it has no works to go along with it. It shows no compassion for its fellow man. And so his final conclusion is, what good is that kind of faith? It's no good at all because it's empty and it's dead. James says mere words won't get it done. Mere words just won't pass the test. Only faith that shows its reality and catapults someone into action is faith that is real and faith that is live and any other faith is dead. No matter how much you call it faith, it's not faith, James says, unless it's backed up by works. I heard the story of a, an outlaw that was robbing a train in the old days of the Old West. And the outlaws were going through the train and they were taking everybody's watches and their billfolds and everything that they possessed. And, and he, uh, the head outlaw came to the man sitting there in, in a seat and uh, the man said, oh, please don't take my wallet. Please don't take my, my, my rings, my jewelry. I'm just an old, poor old Baptist deacon and, and this is all I've got. This is all I've got in my life. Please don't take the things that I've got. And, and the outlaw looked at him and he said, you mean you're a Baptist deacon? He said, yes. He said, well, so am I. Shake on it. <laughs> words, words, words. James says it's all words. What good is it? What good is it? What good is it? If it's not backed up by compassion, by compassion. So his first report on a dead faith is that it has no compassion. Second of all, he says there's no com communion. There's no compassion for a fellow man, but there's no communion with God. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. No communion with God. James says, you believe that God is one? Big deal. <laughs> That's basically what he says. You believe that God is one? So big deal. The demons believe, James says, and they shudder. And that word shudder in the original language means to stand up straight, stiff as a board, and shake from top to bottom. The demons believe that God is one. They believe in God, but yet they shudder. There is no communion with God. You see, orthodox belief, James is saying, is not the answer to faith. Orthodox belief is not the answer to salvation. You can be orthodox and still be lost. You can be as orthodox as the day is long and still die and go to hell. Did you know that the devil is orthodox? The devil is orthodox. I don't want to be flipping here, but it's honestly the truth. That's what the scripture says. He is orthodox. He may be and probably is more orthodox than the average church member, as a matter of fact. He knows more doctrine than most of you. He's more orthodox in his beliefs than most of you. Suppose you could interview Satan. Suppose you could interview the devil. And you ask him this question. Satan, do you believe in the Son of God? He'd say, well, sure, I believe in the Son of God. Luke chapter 4 verse 41 says that as Jesus cast demons out of a man, that they were proclaiming that he was the Son of God. And so Satan would reply, well, sure, I believe that he's the son of God. You ask him the next question, you believe in the virgin birth? And there's a lot of professing Christians these days that, that deny that. 
that Orthodox beliefs. They deny in the virgin birth of Jesus. But you ask Satan, Satan, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? And Satan will say, well, sure, I believe that. I did everything I could to prevent it. You go on and ask Satan, well, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for, as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind? And Satan would say, I know that that's true. I believe that I would have prevented it had I been able to. You say, well, then do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the tomb? Satan would say, yes, yes, yes. If I could have held that stone in one place, I would have done it to have kept him in the tomb. You say, well, then do you believe, Satan, that Jesus is coming again bodily, physically, to take his people to, to glory and to eternity to be with him? And Satan would say, yes, 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 I believe it, and I'm working overtime in the meantime, doing all of the work that I can. And you could go on and on and on, just go right down a list of the theological points of orthodoxy. And Satan would say yes to every one of them. But is Satan saved? No. What's missing? What's missing then? James says you believe that God is one. You do well. But the demons also believe and shudder. What is missing? Ask one more question of Satan and you'd find out what's missing. You would say maybe, Satan, then are you willing, if you believe all of these things, are you willing to bow your knee before Jesus and declare him Lord of the universe and Lord of your life? Satan, are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to love him? Are you willing to serve Jesus? Are you willing to submit your will to the will of God? And Satan would say, no, 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 I never will. I never will. You see, he has orthodoxy. He has all of the right beliefs, but there's no communion with the Father. There is no faith relationship. There is no trust relationship. And that is the mark of dead faith, James says. Just believing does not get it done. But believing that is a faith kind of believing, a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that submits to the Lordship of Christ in your life. And I don't care how much you say you have faith and that you even have saving faith. If Jesus has not been declared Lord of your life, James says, your faith is empty. It is dead. It is vain. It is meaningless. It is not saving faith. You have no concept, he says, of personal relationship that goes beyond facts and gets right to the heart of life. I've said it before, many, many folks, and I believe it's sad and I believe it hurts the heart of God, many folks are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. That's basically the distance from your head to your heart. You may have it up here. You may be able to answer all of the questions but it's never found a home in your heart. Jesus has never found a dwelling place within your life. You understand, you believe, even as Satan does, but you have no communion with the Father by faith. So the marks of dead faith, he says, first, there is no compassion. Second, there is no communion. And third, he says, there is no conversion of life. And really, that's been the theme of everything that James has said thus far, but he really kind of begins to illustrate it and give examples of it in these closing verses, verses 20 through 26. And we'll read those as we get into them. But in these verses, basically, what James says is that faith that has not changed your life is dead faith. Saving faith is going to give it evidence in a changed life. And in to, to, 
to prove his point, he gives two examples and one illustration in these verses that follow of this very point, that dead faith has no conversion of life. He gives two examples and one illustration. Let's look at those examples in that illustration. Verses 21 through 23, he gives first his example of Abraham, and we talked about that just a moment ago. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, his faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. Now, James refers to the life of Abraham, that time when Abraham offered up Isaac, or was about to offer up Isaac on the altar. Why? Simply because God had told him to. And then in verse 23, James quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and it says, And Abraham believed God, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Now let me ask you a question. When did Abraham believe God? That's Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness, God said, in Genesis chapter 15. But when did he offer Isaac? That's not until Genesis 22. That offering, that work, came after the initial belief when he was counted righteous before God. And it was in Genesis 22 when he's about to offer Isaac on the altar totally upon the command of God. And James says that Abraham's faith worked itself out in its result, in its changed life. He believed God, and so he was willing to even go to the place of sacrifice and offer his own son if God had allowed him to do it. And James is giving an illustration that if your faith has not changed your life, then your faith is dead. It obviously had changed the life of Abraham. He believed God in chapter 15. He worked it out, and he proved his belief in chapter 22 when he was willing to offer his son Isaac upon the altar. In chapter 15, he said he believed God. In chapter 22, he proved that he believed God by his works, by his willingness to offer his son Isaac on the altar. His second example is Rahab, verse 25. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the message and sent them away by another way? Now, James anticipates that some folks might say, well, gosh, Abraham, I mean, he had all kinds of works. I mean, just this thing with Isaac, that wasn't it. Abraham could have still been justified by works because he was a righteous man. So James goes from saint to streetwalker <laughs> in his example. From Abraham to Rahab. And he says, was not Rahab also justified by what she did? He goes from a saint to a streetwalker. What did Rahab do? She received the spies as Joshua had sent them into the place of Jericho to spy this place out. Rahab believed the word of God spoken through those men and then acted upon that belief by risking her life by going out on a limb and hiding the spies of God. And the scripture says that because she believed God, because she did that, then Rahab was justified before God. Her belief in the word of God, what was spoken through those prophets, acted itself out in her life and made her do something on the basis of that belief or that faith. Two examples, Abraham, Rahab, and now an illustration James gives in verse 26, and we close with this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith, also, also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now James gives an illustration to work it out. He says, a body that has no spirit is dead. 
Then he says, so also faith without works is dead. And so James's parallel here is that the, the faith or the body is faith. The works represents the spirit or life. So the body here, let's call it a face body, if you will. He says it's dead if it has no spirit, which is the works. And he says you can, you can call it faith all that you want to. You can say that this body is alive all that you want to, but if it doesn't have the spirit, if it doesn't have the works, it still is dead. And so he says faith without works is like a body without spirit. The body is dead no matter how much you declare it to be alive if it has no spirit. The faith is dead no matter how much you declare it to be alive. It is dead if it has no works. When I was youth minister in Hobart, Oklahoma, and by the way, one of the young men that was a member of my youth group will remember this, is visiting with us today. When I was youth minister there for the summer and continued there on the weekends when I went to law school in Oklahoma City, I drove back and forth, and I remember something that happened in a little town outside of Hobart, Oklahoma. I can't even remember the town. Scott may remember it, the town. But a little bitty town about 10 miles outside of Hobart, Oklahoma, a guy died. And there was a group in that town. Uh, I think one of them was a brother. The rest of them were close friends in that little town. They decided that they were going to raise this man from the dead. They were convinced that this man was going to come back to life and that they were going to have the faith to believe it, and they were going to pray him back to life. And so say they set themselves about the process of praying over this man, and for two or three days, they prayed constantly, they fasted, they prayed that this man would rise from the dead and that God would, would bring this man back to life. And by funeral time, the man was still dead. And they went through the entire funeral process there, and then at the end of the funeral, in the back of the auditorium where the body was lying in the casket, these men came and gathered around the casket and they began to shout, He lives! He lives! He's alive! He's alive! And then they took his body and began physically to remove his body from the casket. And they got him about halfway out when they were stopped. Those men went to jail and the guy was still dead. They went to jail and the guy was still dead. No matter how much they proclaimed that his body was alive, he was still dead because he had no spirit. He had no life. And James says, faith that has no works is just like a body without spirit. No matter how much you call it faith, no matter how much you say, but I have saving faith, if it has not changed your life, it's nothing. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's like a body without spirit. Spirit. You can say it's alive, but it doesn't change it. You can call it living, but if it doesn't move, it has no spirit. It's dead. A lot of folks are proclaiming their faith is alive, and God's word proclaims it's dead because it has nothing to back it up. It has not changed your life. So what is James's Cardinal's report on a dead face? Has no compassion, has no communion with the Father, and has no conversion of life. Let me ask you, is that the kind of faith that you have? A faith that is here, but has never made it here, and has never made it here, in a changed life? James says the demons believe and shudder. In other words, head knowledge doesn't cut it. 
a lot of folks someday going to stand before God and he's going to ask them a few questions and they're going to give all the right answers. But then the Lamb's book of life, the scripture says, is going to be opened up and that name is not going to be there. Why? Because there was belief, but there was not heart. There was head knowledge, but there was not changed life from the basis of communion with the living Lord Jesus. And the scripture says, you can call it faith all you want. That doesn't change the fact that it's dead. It's empty. You see, if your religion hasn't changed your life, then you need to change your religion because it's nothing. It's empty. But you know what the gospel says? The gospel is glorious because the gospel says that when the Spirit calls, you can come. When the Spirit of God calls you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, a live faith, a life, a faith that causes you to be born again, you know what that means? Become a new person in Jesus Christ, not just attend church, not just get dunked in the water in a baptistry. So what, James says, big deal. If it hasn't changed your life, it's empty, it's meaningless, it means nothing, and you'll stand before God someday, and you'll have to hear the declaration, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. Why? Because you had it here, but it never worked itself here, and it never worked itself out there. And James says that kind of faith, no matter how much you declare it to be so, is not faith. It's dead. It's empty. It's meaningless. It cannot save you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We're challenged by your word from the very bottom of our hearts. Work your way in our lives right now in Jesus' name. Amen.